Hello class and welcome again to SDS 101, Introduction to Social Development, where we will be discussing the different models and theories of development. Before we start, just a little bit of an overview of the copyright notice. So this material has been reproduced and communicated to you by or on behalf of UP and is covered by the Law on Copyright of the Republic Act 8293 or the Intellectual Property Code of the Philippines. UP does not authorize the reproduction and communication of this material. So please, just use it for the purpose of learning SDS 101. Before we begin, why do we have to understand theories and models, which we will be discussing for week 2, right? So first, I think it... it helps us understand the fact that there's not one theory of development. There are different interpretations on how some countries are rich and why countries are poor, why is there development and why is there underdevelopment. And also, I think it is crucial that we try to understand how do policies and uh, development practice are informed by different theories because they also account uh, for different outcomes in terms of the kind of development path that countries take later on. So we have to understand the theories, the root or the key assumptions that policymakers have when they come up with a particular policy. And it is crucial to also understand what are theories in general. So theories is a well-enlightened explanation of a phenomenon. It's an attempt to understand reality, both uh, it, it is also an assumption kung ano ba yung tao, right? So, how do people behave? And what are the generalizable patterns that could help us predict behavior? That is in the social sciences. In the natural sciences, it's about uh, trying to understand laws of nature, right? And encapsulate that in a theory so that we can better understand reality. Ang sabi dito... A theory is a well-enlightened explanation. The word well-enlightened means that a theory is a product of uh, observation, usually long observations, and a lot of uh, those observations are captured usually in different studies that are applied, and people come up with a generalizable pattern to come up with their own theory. So an example of that is Charles Darwin's theory of evolution, Durkheim's theory of anomie, and Marx's theory of alienation. For this week, we will be discussing at least six theories. Four of them belong to what we call as classic theories of development, and uh, two of them are from the Asian school of uh, development, or the Asian theories of development. So we will group them into four different podcasts that are grouped into, uh, we group theories uh, based on their uh, historical roots as well as the similarity of their assumptions. So first, we will look into modernization theory and neoliberalism. Then we will have uh, the critical theories, dependency and world systems theories. And later on, we'll go into globalization as the third part of our podcast. And lastly, we will look into the Asian theories of development, which includes the Asian values and developmental state. So for the first podcast, we will be discussing modernization theory and neoliberalism. So what comes into mind when we say modern, right? So that has been um, a very controversial topic. It's a loaded term when we say modern. But modernization theory in particular um, has given that a new meaning. So when we say modernization, 
uh, I think one of the, the two crucial things that we have to understand regarding its basic assumption. First, it talks about uh, the diffusion of science and technology. So technology and science as key factors in development and underdevelopment. The other one talks about cultural change. So mamaya titignan natin yung Rousseau's different stages of development. Cultural change, but particularly the adoption of Western culture which determines whether a country is developed or not developed. So again, look into those th two major factors, no? yung science and technology and cultural change. So in modernization, countries develop when they try to adopt the development experience of the West, including their science and technology and the culture and the systems that they put in place for us to be able to develop. So you duplicate the conditions that they had in the past uh, so that we will be able to develop. Kaya doon, included no, sa main assumption niya, yung paggaya ng mga Western systems of development. And another assumption is that development is a linear process. So from underdevelopment to development, all countries are eventually destined to become developed. And of course, there is a baggage of colonialism in this modernization theory where the assumption is that colonial rule is actually more beneficial to the colonies. So this poem by Rudyard Kipling, The White Man's Burden, kind of encapsulates the idea that a lot of people at the time in the West had in mind. White man's burden, the main uh, assumption here is that people from Anglos of Anglo-Saxon origin from Western Europe and from the United States have the responsibility to civilize people outside of their borders or in frontier areas, including our country. So at the time, it was the justification by Americans in controlling the Philippines for quite some time until we become civilized. So what the Americans were thinking at the time was that it was their responsibility to civilize us because they thought that we were barbarians, we do not have the liberty of uh, democracy, and we do not have their own way of living and way, way of thinking. So it was their responsibility to civilize us. So that was the guiding principle uh, and a justification for the colonization of the Philippines at the time. And modernization theory has a lot of roots, uh, from Walt Whitman Ristow, the primary proponent of the theory, Daniel Lerner, Everett Haggett, David McClellan, and of course, uh, Henry Kebschel. Uh, these are the authors who debated, contested, and defined uh, modernization theory. So they have different interpretation of what modernization is, but they compose no, the body of literature that... Um, that, that discusses modernization theory. So what is the linear growth model that we are talking about? It was uh, proposed by Walt Whitman Ristow. It said that uh, the, his linear, there is a linear path along which all countries travel. So this is the assumption of modernization theory when it comes to the historical process that countries go through. What do we mean by historical process? The historical process means the trajectory in which all countries uh, go into. So there are different assumptions. Marxism has different uh, assumptions in its dialectical materialism. Uh, modernization has its own interpretation also of how nations will go uh, about no, in a long span of time. So for modernization, all countries will eventually move 
from being developed into being uh, from being underdeveloped into being developed so that's why the assumption is linear ang process ng development so generations right now have enjoyed better standards of living compared to people in the past and the future generation will get better so that is a linear path of development Okay, so development also was seen primarily as the accumulation of material resources. Uh, that's why it's focused on economic growth and secondarily as a problem of securing social changes. So very economic-oriented, no? Ang, ang, ang modernization theory. That's why if development is the goal of society, so the government's role is to create conditions towards uh, the development of countries. So, kung titignan natin yung model ni Rostow of different stages of economic development, we can see that there is a movement from traditional society to high mass consumption. Again, as we said, there are two crucial factors in the assumptions of modernization theory, technology, science and technology, and culture. So, from traditional society, uh, in terms of technology, very nascent, no? very maliit yung klase ng technology that they have. And usually, people rely on barter, um, there is a very small amount of mechanization, and with, in terms of culture, very hierarchical ang social structure, uh, there were strong family relations, there is a dominant uh, religious group in, in, in that area. I think it's because um, when you look at it, the proponents of modernization theory was looking into the experiences of Europe at the time, from the Middle Ages, where they had a very a small technology, and later on, coming into industrial revolution. So, as we said, theories are usually based from the circumstances, from the historical context where they were built. So, they were um, referencing, of course, to their own experience. And then you go into the preconditions for takeoff. So, there is a higher rate of capital accumulation. So, capital is being uh, produced as countries begin to specialize uh, there has been some commercialization, risk-taking, entrepreneurial class. There is a modernization of national government and higher investment in infrastructure. Because in preconditions to, for takeoff, whereas in the past, economies in a traditional society are usually self-sufficient, when you have preconditions for takeoff, countries and economies are beginning to specialize. So for example, a country, um, if you understand the theory of comparative advantage, for example, a country is good in producing rice, so it con should concentrate all its efforts in producing rice rather than producing corn. On the other hand, if its neighbor is more efficient in producing corn, it should produce corn instead of rice. And what they do to compensate for uh, what they are lacking in terms of corn and rice, they will go into trade, right? They will trade their surplus in return or in exchange for the other products that they do not have. Uh, so that is the theory of comparative advantage, which gives reason and justification for trade. So during takeoff, the, there is an accumulation of capital, but I think one of the things that I remember my professor at the time when we discussed this in class was that during takeoff, one of the conditions that are necessary is to have a certain amount of savings around 5 to 10 percent because you will use that to create industrial uh, revolution, right? And it was based from the experience of Great Britain at the time when they had significant savings. They can now invest that in creating new industries, which will create industrial revolution. 
and there will be the uh, which will cause rapid growth in certain sectors. So that is why it is historically situated because again, even the reference point is the British Empire at the time. And then after takeoff, you have drive to maturity where there is an expansive use of modern technology, there is an improvement in industrial skill, expansion of urbanization, and specialization of labor. Um, one thing also that happens during stage four is that countries begin to diversify, they begin to innovate as the investments on industry has produced uh, this different research and innovation um, capacity. And there is less reliance on imports as they become more specialized in certain products and there is increase also in investment. So some of people, if you look um, at the, for example, at Chinese development, which uh, I, I like to do as an example because China has grown very fast. So it was during the time that they were agricultural before and right now they are focusing on manufacturing and later on they are going into services. Diba yung mga Huawei, I think if you were old enough. So Huawei in the past, in year 2000, 2004, they were producing really cheap phones that you won't even use because it's so ugly. But as they develop, as China develop right now, they have more money to invest in science and technology so that they have... Uh, Huawei right now is very competitive and the Chinese products are competitive because they began to have increased investment. So they are in the middle stage in drive to maturity. Because let us remember that China, for example, um, a lot of its policymakers are neoliberal and modernist despite the fact that they are in a communist country by name. Okay? So, and then you go into the high mass consumption society. During that time, ma mass consumption society... So the economy is mostly driven by consumption, where there are durable goods, there is also the service sector becomes dominant. So majority of the economy is being run or being driven by internal consumption. So this is the highest stage in modernization theory. And I think even when you look at the kind of policies that we have um, in the world, there is really a drive towards increased commercialization, uh, sorry, increased consumption, right? Or a consumption-based economy, that is what they think as very uh, ideal because it is resistant to external shocks or ex external demand. Kasi pag, pag uh, nakabase ka sa export, so pag mababa ang demand from other countries, your economy will be affected, right? So um, that is... Because a lot of our economists, for example, have modernist and neoliberal tendencies, right? And it's also during the mass consumption stage that you have an expansive military expenditure because you have surplus money now and you want to protect your economic interests abroad and you have concern for external power. So this is what happened. Again, the reference point is the United Kingdom and the United States when they became develop and when they have enough money and they have surplus already, they were interfering in the affairs of other countries because they have commercial interests right now and they have a lot of surplus because they've learned to specialize. So where do you, what do you do with that surplus? You have to sell it to other countries. So they have really legitimate um, economic interests now and um, it has to be secured through military means. Now the strength of modernization theory 
Uh, of course, you can identify the basis of the research focus because it focuses on technology and culture. It, it can be a useful analytical framework in understanding why the United States and why Western countries like the United Kingdom have pursued the kind of policies that they did. And also, um, I think one of the strengths of modernization theory is it's and indeed, it was able to capture the development experience in Europe and the United, King, uh, United Kingdom, the United States at the time. But the critique, of course, is how do you replicate that into the Asian context and into the context of many developing countries in Latin America and Africa. And also, development is not necessarily unidirectional. So I think one of the interesting things as to why modernization theory thinks that growth is linear because during the industrial revolution they came from the renaissance and then you have the uh, enlightenment renaissance and then you have the industrial revolution so a lot of people in europe at the time were thinking that the civilization is becoming better and better until world war one and world war two came in where there was definitely um a fall no in terms of the civilization so it it was uh, the the thinking was actually rooted from the uh, thinking of the people at the time in during the industrial revolution but certainly it was not unidirectional no so some countries like us for example we have fluctuating growth it's not very linear so how do you uh, explain that, right? So modernization definitely is lacking in terms of that. And also modernization only shows one possible model of development and it fails to take into account other models of development where there is indeed fluctuation. For example, in the case of Venezuela right now, so it used to be a rising star among South American economies and right now it is in shambles, right? So uh, it's not that really... Um, it, it did not take uh, a linear process of development. And even the Philippines, you're, you're familiar already, that it is not linear as well. And then it tries to eliminate traditional values, but traditional values are usually very useful, as we can see in Japan, in South Korea, in China, where they've integrated traditional values with uh, economic development. In Singapore also, a lot of Confucian tradition in a very efficient government and a very developed economy. So it doesn't mean that you have to completely remove um, culture away from that. And even in Western experience, I do not think that there was completely removal of uh, traditional values. Because, for example, the United States is still guided by Christian principles, right? And a lot of Enlightenment principles are rooted in European culture. So... Um, I, I do not think that they even got it right no, in explaining the development experience of their part of the world. Okay. And, of course, the next theory is highly influenced by modernization theory, and that is neoliberalism. So neoliberalism actually is a product of that. Uh, it's like a cousin or a child of modernization theory. And it has become the dominant uh, economic model that we have in the world today. So even in... In, in the Philippines, we've tried to replicate neoliberalism in our part of the world. So neoliberalism, it's not just an economic theory, but it's also a policy stance. So it claims that a largely unregulated capitalist system or a free market 
does not just embody the ideal of a free individual choice, but also achieves optimum economic performance with regards to efficiency, economic growth, technical progress, and distributional justice. So in neoliberal theory, the main assumption is that if you leave people, industries, and businesses on their own with very limited um, state intervention, you will be able to achieve efficiency. Particularly, I think what is missing in the slide that you have to understand is the orientation towards profit. Because profit is the drive for people to become efficient, to become more effective. And when they are earning money right, and getting incentives, it will be able to create somewhat an equilibrium where people will be able to um, be more effective and will be able to... Um, to self-correct itself with equilibrium because supply meets demand. I think that is a very important um, concept here in neoliberalism. The other one is that the state should be assigned a very limited role, particularly in defining property rights, in enforcing contracts, in regulating the money supply, and state intervention to correct market failures is viewed with suspicion on the ground that such intervention is likely to create more problems than it solves. I'd like to um, highlight this part because as we said, uh, neoliberalism favors almost no government or minimal government intervention. First, is because they think that the state is imperfect, that the state is incompetent, and that the state in general is um, is populated with people who do not know how to do business. That's one. The other thing is that um, they do not like the state because for the state to intervene in the economy because the state cannot be a market player and a market regulator at the same time because it creates collusion, right? It gives the state an unfair advantage. It disturbs uh, equilibrium. No? If, if it distorts incentives, if the state becomes both a player and both... Um, uh, the regulator, so when it assumes a dual role. And in particular, I think, magandang tignan natin yung concept ng market failure. Okay, so yung concept ng market failure is that when the market, the businesses, the firms, and the people fail to create an equilibrium, so the state should intervene, right, in the event of market failure. What is an example of a market failure? For example, the highly unregulated rice sector um, you have problems with supplies, right, in, in the market sector, and the price is very high, right, which is creating a lot of chaos already when you have troubles with rice. So the normal tendency is for government to come in and try to run after businesses who are um, abusing or hoarding rice, right? So that is an example of market failure where government comes in to intervene because the market wasn't able to deliver better results. However, in neoliberalism, the state should be hands-off because if the state intervenes, in this case, a problem with, with, with rice supply and rice prices, it will cause a lot more trouble because in the first place, they think that the state is incompetent and the state is greedy. And if the state intervenes, there it will cause panic, it will cause um, problems, no? more problems rather than benefits. So that is the, the mindset that neoliberalist um, policies normally have. No? So they don't want to control, to have state intervention even in the event of a market failure. And there are more extreme <laughs> um, ideas in terms of neoliberalism. This include a lazy fare, 
um, which I think is saying that there should be an invisible hand. And sometimes, you know, some extremes is that there's no government at all. There should be anarchy, so they're libertarian. So meron din yung scale, some neoliberalist uh, policies took it uh, to another level. Okay? So neoliberalism, the policy recommendations are concerned mainly with this dismantling what remains of the regula- regulationist welfare state and the recommendations include the deregulation of business where you privatize public activities and assets uh, elimination of or cutbacks in social welfare programs so i think let's try to deduce this one by one the the loaded terms that we have so why does neoliberalism calls for privatization? Not that I agree with it, right? But let's see what where they are coming from. So what they're saying is that businesses that the state is not good in engaging with business. It is not good in engaging with business because as I mentioned before, for neoliberals, the state cannot be a market player and a market regulator at the same time. It cannot assume a dual role because at in the event that there is a problem or the state uh, would committed um, uh, something that is not good in the market, so who will regulate the state when it is the regulate? It is uh, who will regulate the player, which is in this case the state also, when the regulator is also the government. So you, the state cannot regulate and play in the market at the same time. Another thing is because, again, the state is viewed with suspicion because uh, I think ito yung isa sa mga narinig ko, no? na, na sentiments na very neoliberal, na hindi magaling maningil ang gobyerno. For example, when government engages in business. So, uh, they do not believe in the potential of government to actually be able to be good at that. At dahil walang profit motivation ng government, usually very inefficient siya. Yun ang tingin ng mga neoliberal because it's free for all money. So there is no sense of care for, for, for money. And uh, the second one is the elimination of cutbacks on social welfare programs because for a lot of neoliberals, they think that when you give social welfare so much, it disincentivizes hard work on people. So nagiging tamad daw yung mga tao if you give so much uh, welfare program. So they want to have cutbacks. So yun yung reason why a lot of Republicans, for example, oppose uh, a lot of social welfare uh, benefits in the United States. Again, we don't agree with it, but that is how neoliberals think about things. And also, the, you should reduce businesses, uh, tax, the tax on businesses and the investing class because you want to, when you allow them to keep profit as much as they can or as much as they would, it would incentivize the kind of innovation that we see, such as Facebook, such as Amazon. So the innovation possibilities will be endless because people will work very hard if they are rewarded for their hard work. In the international sphere, it wants to have free movement of goods, services, capital, and money, but usually not people. That's why Western countries cut back on immigration. So across national boundaries, and that corporations, banks, and individual investors should be free to move their property across national boundaries and free to acquire property across also different countries. So what neoliberalism wants is that you should it should be a competition in attracting capital, in attracting talent, in attracting people. So there should be no limitations in terms of movement of capital and people. And that is why a neoliberal perspective also 
you should not have very high tariff or we should completely eliminate tariff because countries should be free to trade uh, with each other or people in certain countries should be able to trade with each other without any other limitations. However, there are strengths no, in neoliberalism. So I think if there are strengths quantitatively and you know statistically, when you look at countries that have adopted neoliberal policies, a lot of them, I'm not saying everyone, no, were actually uh, able to create some form of development, right? So they have higher GDP per capita, high GDP, indeed they, they were able to create um, economic development. But again, it came at a cost, right? So, for example, in countries such as the United Kingdom and the United States, where Thatcher and Reagan at the time adopted neoliberal policies, they were able to grow very, very fast and was able to increase their economy, but at the cost to the poor people. So you have a population in those societies that are very rich and a big portion of the population who are very poor. And right now, it is sort of um, becoming more evident in the United States as development that was pursued in neoliberal fashion at the time, for the longest time since Reagan and, and, and other presidents in the past, you can see the effect now where you have a big portion of Americans, for example, who do not have access to health care, and a very huge, a small portion of Americans who are very rich and can accumulate more than 100 billion U.S. dollars in money, right? <laughs> like uh, Mark Zuckerberg. So, uh, that, that's one. And I think another thing is that um, it has so much faith on the private sector to be able to have market efficiency, to be able to self-correct themselves, not taking into account that the private sector can be greedy as well. Right, So as we can see in the 2009 financial crisis where bankers were able to, um, were, were so greedy no? that they were uh, circumventing the financial markets which led to its eventual collapse. Diba? So nakita natin yung utang, pinapautang pa, right? So the, the mortgage is already being mortgaged by another company. That's why when there is a problem in one bank, it creates um, it creates a ripple effect. And also, for example, in the United States, again, I'll give the U.S. as an example because they are the classic example of neoliberalism. Um, medicines are very expensive for an average American, much more expensive than the money that we can buy, than the medicines that we can buy here in the Philippines. That's why a lot of Americans cannot even go to hospitals because, uh, as you can see, companies were more or less free to give as much um, as much price or increase price as much as they would want to. No? So it came at the expense of the poor. So it put so much faith on the private sector, but the private sector can be greedy as well. So it, I think the neoliberals have forgotten that, and it became evident with the financial crisis. And even here, in coronavirus, diba, during our time. So there were overpricing and mask at the beginning, diba, yung mga mask napaka-tataas ng presyo when there was disaster capitalism. So the private sector does not always, uh, are not always merciful and kind and, and holy as may, many neoliberals would assume. And lastly, uh, I'd like to drive this point. 
there is um, a skepticism on the part of neoliberals on the government because they assume that government is incompetent, ineffective, and inefficient. But there are models also when governments are very effective. So we saw that in Switzerland, in Singapore, in, in Hong Kong, in Taiwan, and maybe some agencies here in the Philippines. Um, but the thing is, governments can also be efficient. There can be um, cases where government is also competent. Uh, we cannot box government into one, which uh, I think we should also remember quite well. No? Kasi mamaya, titignan natin the experiences in Asia where a lot of development is actually state or market-led. Uh, and it baffles a lot of neoliberal uh, thinkers that those things are existing. So that's, uh, I think, some reflection on modernization in neoliberal uh, neoliberalism. So we are not... Uh, recommending one theory or the other but i think one thing that for you to understand is that when you look at these different theories you try to interpret it using the lens of a filipino no and see what kind of theory is apt or applicable in the context of the philippines and how did these theories when we adopted them historically in our country did they benefit us or it caused us more troubles and um inequality. So yes, we will move on to the next part of our podcast and see you there. Thank you. Hello class and we're now on our part two of our week two, right? Part two in week two, ganda no? <laughs> of our podcast and we will look into critical theories. So for critical theories, we have two theory here. Dependency theory and world systems theory. So a little just bit of a background and how we relate it to our first part of the podcast for this week. So dependency theory and world systems theory, we call them critical theories because they were a reaction no? to reactions to modernization and neoliberalism. Because at the time, uh, a lot of the modernization and neoliberal policies were promoted in developing countries through conditionalities because of the Bretton Woods institutions. So the Bretton Woods institutions were mainly devised by developed countries such as the United States and the United Kingdom. The World Bank and the International Monetary Fund are part of this and the GATT, which later on became the World Trade Organization. These were propagating neoliberalist agenda. Um, the system is where before getting the loans, you need to have some conditionalities to fulfill. So the conditionalities include opening up your market, privatizing your state enterprises. So it came with a condition. So you cannot get a loan unless you're able to fulfill those conditions. Or if you get a loan, you need to promise your debtor, which is the World Bank or IMF, that you will create adjustments in your government policies and government structure. So, that is where uh, yung hugot ng dependency theory and world systems theory because it created poverty instead of development in many developing countries such as the Latin American countries, Argentina, Brazil, and also uh, in Africa. Okay, so dependency theory is an objection to modernization theory and the linear view of development as I mentioned. It came at the point when countries around the world, particularly the colonies, the former colonies, became independent from 1960s to 1970s. However, the third world remained poor because the first world were exploitative. So I think world systems theory will have some 
more explanation on this because they were locked in an unfair system of trade, which we will discuss later on. So one of the major proponents is Raul Prebich, and the other proponents include Andre Gunder Frank, Paul Barron, Samir Amin, Fernandez and Ocampo, and Bill Warren also chimed in in critiquing dependency theory. So those are the people that we have to read if you want to learn more about dependency theory. So there are four main points of dependency theory. It combines elements from neo-Marxist perspective and Keynes economic theories. Of course, neo-Marxist perspective is more on... um, uh, right, the exploitation on the part of the exploitation of the capitalists and the elites from the uh, developed countries. No, so yun yung yun yung assumption where uh, neo Marxist ang perspective. And on the other hand, yung kay Keynes, kinuha nila yung strong government intervention in the economy. Okay, so the major assumptions include the development of an internal effective demand in terms of domestic market. There should be also an industrial sector that are crucial in achieving um, better levels of national development. You need to increase workers' income as a means of generating more aggregate demand in national market condition and promote a more effective government role to reinforce national development conditions and increase national standards of living. We can summarize it into two, actually. The first one is you need to create uh, a strong internal market so that you will be able to develop. Because when you have a strong internal market, you are less prone from being uh, exploited by other countries because your economic activities are dependent on your own population's demand. So that is why it includes increasing workers' income because if you increase workers' income, they have more disposable um, income to be able to buy goods and services which will generate um, internal demand and economic activity. The other aspect, apart from creating that strong internal market, is to have more government control to reinforce development conditions and increase national living standards. So the state in the dependency theory has a very prominent role in comparison to modernization and neoliberalism. Here, the state should be hands-on in the economy. Okay, so there is a major hypothesis of dependency theory. First is that the development of nations in the third world uh, requires subordination from the core. This is the setup that core countries would like to, right? And the second one is peripheral nations experience the greatest economic development when their ties at the core are the weakest. So the less, less dependent periphery countries are from the core, they are more developed. So I think it's more of untangling yourself from that unfair uh, system of trading relationship or economic relationship with the core to enable you to get out of that and develop yourself. So if a country is to develop, you have to get out of the system um, of, of, of trade and economic relationship with Western countries. So the core recovers from its crises and that is during the war, World War II, and reestablishes trade and investment ties, it fully incorporates the peripheral nation once again into the system, and the growth of industrialization in these regions are stifled. I will be giving some example later on on how this happens. 
So regions that are highly underdeveloped and still operate on a traditional feudal system are those that in the past had the closest ties to the core. So according to dependency theories, the poorest countries in the world are the countries that are most dependent to developed countries in terms of trade. And because they are locked in the system of exploitation in terms of trade, they are the poorest. So the indication of a country or one determinant for a country to be very poor is that close relationship. And one determinant of a country that is somewhat rich is for it to be able to get out of that system, unfair system of relationship with the core. So this cycle of dependency, I think I, if you look into your slide where we have the car and the steel example, I think this is where we can exemplify how these unfair relationships are, in terms of trade is going about. So for example, let's assume that the periphery is producing raw material, which is steel. And the core, on the other hand, is producing a finished good, which is a car. Okay? So the value of the steel is 10,000 US dollars. The value of a car is 40,000 US dollars. So imagine the situation. If the periphery sells the core steel, right? So the periphery will get in payment 10,000 US dollars for the steel that it sold to the core. On the other hand, if the core sells a car which is worth 40,000 US dollars, if it sells it to the periphery, it will earn 40,000 US dollars because that is the price of car that the periphery has to pay for. Again, tignan nyo yung uh, nasa slide. Okay, so when this exchange happens, it means that the value of the product of the core is higher than the value of the periphery. So for us to understand how much capital has flown from the periphery to the core, we have to make some simple arithmetic. So you 40,000 US dollars, the value of the car in which the periphery paid for the core to buy that car, minus the 10,000 US dollars that it gained from selling steel to produce the car to the core. It means that when you minus 40,000 and 10,000 US dollars, there is a 30,000 US dollar capital that has flown from the periphery to the core simply because the product of periphery countries are a lot cheaper compared to the core and the core countries have higher no higher amount of, of, of products because they're selling um, finished goods so they have to be paid more so this is how the cap capital flight happens and that's just one product so if you have multiple products where the core kept on selling finished goods in exchange for the raw materials that the periphery are selling, there is a continuous drainage of capital from the periphery to the core, which accounts for underdevelopment in periphery countries. And if you are locked in this relationship, there is almost no possibility for you to be able to become developed. So po poorer countries, even though they are richest in natural resources, remain poor. So diba, minsan nagtataka kayo, bakit kayo mga bansang pinakamayayaman? sa natural resources sila pang mahihirap. So, the, the dependency theory tries to at least a bit answer that, that it is also man-made, no? Because the colonizers did it. So, the strength of dependency theory, I think they were able to explain that. How come these rich, economically, uh, natural resource-rich countries have become poor? And at the same time, 
it looked into the power structures that are that we often normally overlook because we assume that in trade in neoliberalism you are all under equal footing when in reality you are not some countries benefit from trade while some others are not benefiting um, from trade so i think this is exactly what we see the other side of trade where some people are not really benefiting and there is um, exploitation in this case however i think the critique of dependency theory is that um, underdeveloped nations derive um, industrial technological production rather than from financial ties to monopolies from the core nations right so in in a highly financialized uh, sector no so hindi na lang we cannot just ex- explain it in terms of raw materials versus finished goods particularly in an economic setup where you have a lot of financial instruments that are in place so how do you explain that and also there is little empirical evidence to support its conclusion according to the writer <laughs> and um the theoretical positions are highly abstract and um although yes multinational corporations are viewed with suspicion in dependency theory but we see also in reality that sometimes they can be an opportunity to have technological transfer so in case of china for example in south korea they had a lot of foreign direct investments in the beginning where you have manufacturings coming from the west uh, what they did was they required them to transfer technology to the locals and later on they built from that technology uh, so that they can able to leapfrog and develop their own technology on the basis of Western technology. So at least they have familiarization on how to do things. And later on, when they were confident enough to do it and have the skilled people to do it, they were able to produce their own technology. That's why Huawei, for example, is is producing and competing against Apple right now. When China began as an assembly plant for Apple, South Korea has Kia and a lot of uh, brands like Samsung and etc etc so there is a benefit on on multinational corporation investing in your country but of course there are costs injustices hindi uh, magandang working conditions so environmental pollution caused by MNC so there are also costs no? and um, yes so i think that is where dependency theory is lacking and its child or its cousin is the world systems theory. So it talks about the totality of the economic system of the world operated by a myriad of forces all interacting with one another. So there's a mutual interdependence and a division, division of labor wherein it still rewards the rich and penalizes the poor. I think the world systems theory kind of expanded the assumptions of dependency theory. Mamaya makikita natin how did it expand, but they're most likely similar. Right? The first one is that uh, in world systems theory, it added another component wherein itong, in, in explaining things where this unfair system of relationship is a result of economic imperialism. Because in the past, when the colonies were part politically of the colonizer's uh, state, uh, there was a political control, so it was easier to have uh, economic control. But right now, under a new setup where a lot of countries have become independent, where the political control is not visible or not apparent, but there is still some political control, but <laughs> but but not not as apparent anymore, not as visual, yung political control, the colonizers 
uh, what they do is to come up with economic imperialism by tying countries into this unfair trade relationship that we have demonstrated earlier. Because there are different types of imperialism. One is economic, which is how um, a lot of countries uh, exploit trade as an opportunity to do that. There's political, military, communication, and cultural imperialism. So there are different ways in which countries become uh, colonized. And of course, in world systems theory, there are different types of, uh, of economies. Hindi lang siya core and periphery. Dinagdagan niya yung assumption ni, ni dependency. Nilagyan niya pa ng semi-periphery. So the core is the capital-intensive countries. The periphery are the low-skilled labor and raw material country. So the core, the companies and the corporations of the core, they put it in periphery countries because that is where labor is cheap, that is where environmental policies are lax, so they can pollute the environment, which they can do at, they cannot do at home because there are more stringent laws that they have at home and they would like to protect their own environment, but at the expense of poor nations. And um, but the difference here is that you have semi-peripheries, which are trading guard, trade guarding trade routes, and divide and conquer at the periphery level. So, what the world systems theory does is to explain it a little bit further that all these core periphery and semi-periphery countries have a role to play, and they are all connected under a capitalist system that are, is highly exploitative. Right, And there is a possibility for a country to become a semi-periphery as well, which is absent in dependency theory. So an example of a semi-periphery includes Japan right, and then South Korea. The strength in world systems theory is first it was able to capture the, that capitalist model and try to integrate these different countries, the semi-periphery, the core, and the periphery into uh, an integrated understanding of how this capitalist world economic system is creating development and underdevelopment in the world. And then like dependency theory, it was able to um, show that some countries can indeed um, can indeed go into um, to move from a periphery to a semi-periphery. So there is uh, change in status, and it's possible to change in status even against... Um, an exploitative condition. So, and both dependency and world systems theory, I think their advantages is again they were able to explain the exploitative nature of the system and the complexity behind that. But if there are critiques that I think uh, you should consider is that the fact that dito naman masyado yung overconfidence sa role ng state, but states can also be <laughs> inefficient, right? So we saw. Um, a lot of cases where the state, if it becomes too powerful, it also can cause redress no? or abuses against against the, the government, right? Or against the people. So, um, and a lot of nationalized, nationalization of industries in Latin America with Chavez, for example, in Venezuela and in North Korea did not work. No? So, because they went into the extremes naman, of dependency theory. So, uh, those are some of the things that we can reflect on. Again, as I said, we do not pr promote one theory over the other, but it's up to you to reflect on them, to see how did they influence the development conditions of the Philippines, and uh, to be able to be a little bit more critical in understanding what are the assumptions of certain policies, any theoretical roots that they are 
basing their assumptions upon. Okay, and then we move on to the next part of our podcast, which is globalization. And see you there.